Welcome back to Banter for a special remote episode, our first ever remote episode during the throes of the coronavirus crisis in this country. So despite all the bad news you're hearing across the nation, we have some good news to bring to you, which is our special guest today is AEI's president, Robert Doerr. Robert Doerr has been president at AEI since June of last year. He previously was the head of our poverty studies program and formerly ran social services in New York City under Mayor Bloomberg. We're thrilled to have him, and we're going to talk about the coronavirus and how AEI and the country are responding. You just heard Max Tui. I'm Max Frost. Next up is Matt Winesett. We're thrilled to have you here today. We hope everyone's staying healthy, and here's Matt. Hey, guys, and make sure you stick around for the end when Robert and I have a very rambunctious debate about space exploration. You won't want to miss it. But for now, without further ado, here is AEI President Robert Doerr. Governor Haley, thanks for coming in. It's my pleasure to be here. Thank you. Mr. George Will, welcome. Glad to be with you. Arthur Brooks, welcome back. Thank you, guys. I appreciate it. Ambassador Wolfowitz, pleasure to have you. Nice to be here. Thanks. Ms. Peggy Noonan, thank you for coming. Guys, thank you very much for having me. Mr. Bolton, it's an honor for you to be with us today. Glad to be with you. Thanks for having me. J.D. Vance, welcome. Thank you for having me. Robert, thank you so much for coming on the show. We're honored to have you today. Great to be here. Robert, my first question is, as the head of one of the country's leading think tanks and as former head of social services in America's largest city and the one most threatened right now by COVID-19, what is your message to the United States of America right now? Well, I'm focusing on a message of encouragement. I think that we've had big challenges in the past as a country. Uh, and when we marshal all our resources and we come together and we work hard and people who are on the front lines get supported and show their American spirit uh, and generous spirit, we overcome difficult challenges. And I think that's what's going to happen here. You know, there have been some false steps and some slow starts and some difficulties, no question. But I am noticing now that the healthcare system is expanding its capacity. Uh, the number of hospital beds is increasing. The availability of testing is dramatically increasing. Uh, ventilators are being manufactured and shipped. And I think my message is, is encouragement. This is let's, let's keep at it. You know, I was the commissioner of uh, one of the divisions of social services in New York State in, during 9-11. And that was a devastating blow to our city and our state and our country and people of all backgrounds from New York and from around the country rallied and we bounced back much faster than I think we thought we were going to when the Twin Towers had come down. And I think we're going to bounce back from this much faster than we think we're, we had to. I also think planning for the worst and preparing for the worst is going to help us get through it. Uh, and so that we can maybe say, gee, we really, we maybe overdid it with our reaction to that. But by doing that, we may be limiting the number of, of uh, preventable deaths. This is not public health versus economics. This is, if we tackle this right as a public health challenge, we'll be doing what's best for our economy at the same time. There are going to be costs and it's going to be difficult, but I know we can do it. So, Robert, obviously AEI is doing a lot right now. Um, can you just talk about a few of the initiatives, a bit of the work that we're doing um, to help the United States get through this? Well, the principal, the person that's getting a lot of attention is our public health expert, Scott Gottlieb, who's the former commissioner of the Food and Drug Administration in the Trump administration. He's very close to the Trump administration people, and he's been both 
in the way that a classic AI scholar, both commenting on the public discussion and participating in the public dialogue through writings in the Wall Street Journal and his other writings, but he's also been advising the president and the vice president and the officials at HHS and in the White House on how to respond to this. And he's really been uh, tireless. Uh, and I think when this is over, we're going to say that he saved lives, that he called the alarm earlier than others. And he got it using in part AEI's platform. He got people to pay attention to this issue. And in getting them to pay attention to this issue, we're going to be better prepared. Now, we're still going to have problems and there's still difficulties and, and there were mistakes. But Scott Gottlieb was on the side of getting us armed and ready. So I think uh, he's number one. But we've also been on the front lines of helping Congress and the White House put together an economic package that will help us bounce back, as, I think, as fast as possible. They didn't do everything our scholars recommended or didn't do as much of it what we recommended. But Dr. Strain and Glenn Hubbard and Jimmy Petrakoukas and a variety of others have, have contributed to the formulating a recovery package that recognizes that this is a very unusual circumstance that calls for a really big boost in demand-side stimulus that can get our economy back on its feet quickly uh, in the wake of the, of the shutdowns that governors and mayors have put in place. So my view is, is that we were, scholars at AI were helpful in, in calling the alarm and getting us to pay attention to this problem so that we could be prepared for it in a stronger fashion. And AI scholars are going to be uh, responsible in part for form helping to formulate the solution so that by next fall or next winter, we're uh, back on uh, a stronger footing economically. And people that are vulnerable or who have faced very serious dislocation from their employment can um, be protected uh, given this very unusual circumstance. So that's, that's I think, the biggest uh, one. I think our foreign policy team has also played a role in that they have called attention to the fact that, you know, our principal competitor in the world, uh, China, is, or one of our principal competitors in the world, is, you know, uh, played a role in, in letting this become so severe for the world when it didn't need, need necessarily to have gone that way. As we record this, we don't, the bill has not become law yet, but all signs point to the stimulus package $2 trillion in direct aid, another $4 trillion, I think, in loans, probably about to pass. But one big concern is, it, do you think it does enough for the people, maybe the more economically and socially disadvantaged people across the country that are really in a bit of a panic right now? Do you, do you, I, do you think this bill is going to do enough for people? If it helps them stay in employment, which is one of its principal goals, it will. If we have really, really widespread and long, uh, long-term unemployment and people are dispatched from their jobs and they're not brought back as rapidly as possible, then I think we're going to have to look at it again and, and see if, if more needs to be done. But the focus, I like the fact that the focus has been on temporary, uh, short-term, quick, and get people back to work. Uh, rather than an effort to, to the extent that I have seen it, uh, to sort of suddenly decide to implement a much more long-term and fundamental change to our safety net system. Um, now, I'm a little worried about that because I haven't been able to look at all of the details. And so it's conceivable to me in these sorts of very speedy deliberations that people who want to 
use this as an excuse to significantly and for the long term expand our safety net, both what we spend, uh, but also change it and so that it make it more of an entitlement um, as opposed to something that comes with certain requirements and expectations to the extent that we do that in our safety net programs, then that will really, that'll be a problem. And that, that is a potential longer term problem uh, if, if this legislation does that. But in my judgment, the single best anti-poverty ingredient in American society is a growing, prosperous, employing economy. And that's what we need. And, and, and the funny thing is, even if they, if people that want to replace a government benefits with payroll checks, even if they succeeded, they're not going to reduce poverty uh, successfully because the benefits from work and from wages plus assistance that can supplement those wages is just much more successful at getting people above poverty. The sad part about this tragedy that we're in is that we were at a point of really remarkable, historic, over a long period of time, low points. That, and this is good, good low points for child poverty, for poverty among African Americans, for poverty among Hispanics, for poverty from, for all Americans, because the economy was strong, people were earning wages, and uh, wages were rising, and to the extent that those wages weren't enough to support a family, we also had in place various supplementary policies that supplement wages. And so, you know, we may look back in five years and we may say that there was never a time when we were as successful in reducing poverty as we were just prior to this, the advent of the COVID-19 virus. And that'll be a real tragedy because my hope is that we can get back to where we were faster and not be saying for a long time, gee, you know, the, the, the great days were, you know, the last part of 2019. And, but that was the best we ever got. And, and how do we get back to there? You know, that would be a tragedy. You know, again, it's all about employment. It's all about earnings and wages. I want to be clear, this is not wages in, in, among uh, high school educated and no more or limited education individuals or people at the beginning of the, of the economic ladder. They're, they're, they don't make people safely in the middle class, but they do help people escape poverty and they help households with children in them escape poverty. That was, was working successfully to get people above the poverty line. Now, we have we had lots of work to do to get them further up. That's true. But I'd rather be uh, in low poverty, in a situation where we had low percentages of people in poverty and then a challenge to get them into higher incomes and up the economic ladder, then have lots of people in poverty and also a challenge to get people up the economic ladder. So we were at a very good time at the end of uh, uh, 2019. And um, I wanna get back there as soon as possible. And I have, uh, I have some hope that if that this extensive, real concentrated, dramatic, historic investment in trying to get us back uh, up again in the wake of the virus could get us back to, to where we were. But if it contains a lot of things that make people have a greater incentive to remain out of work and, and in receipt of benefits, even when jobs are available, that will be a problem. Robert, as we mentioned in the intro, you became president of AEI in June of 2019, and you were lucky 
to enjoy eight and a half pandemic-free months. So my question for you right now is whether you think that this virus and this crisis has has derailed your plans for AEI or if this has almost presented a new opportunity for AEI to manifest its values and for some of our people, as you said, Scott Gottlieb, folks like Michael Strange, Dan Voiger, Dr. Yuval Levin, for all of them to come together and show what a think tank does and how we're important to America. My view is that we're just going to keep going the direction we were going in. We're, we're, we're not a retail business. We're not a, a restaurant or, or, or a, a store that, or a, a sporting event. We have scholars and people that can do the work they need to do and not necessarily be in the same building. And my plans for AI haven't changed, and we're just continuing to work on them. And that is to have the best scholarship and commentary on the important public policy issues facing our country and promote that scholarship and commentary in a way that leads it to move the country in a direction that increases freedom and promotes free markets and free people and a strong American role in the world and economic opportunity for all. And that hasn't changed. We are a public policy research institution with a purpose. And that purpose is to help our country get better. That's not changing. That's still, that's still our purpose. We're going to keep doing it every day. Robert, you mentioned earlier 9-11. Uh, a lot of people have been comparing this to World War II in terms of the way people view the government may fundamentally change after this. Do you think that's going to happen where we may see people becoming more reliant on the government? Or do you think people may become more skeptical um, of big government given the way this has kind of gone on so far? We've had a lot of people that are in some way or another reliant on government. Big government got out of the bag pretty big in the post-war years and in the 60s. And while we've made some efforts to constrain it, you know, the idea that we're going from a halcyon period of limited government where the federal government was hardly involved in people's lives, and then we had this and we're going to a wholly new world where federal government's involved in everybody's lives, I think that's just silly. Fact is, as our scholars have shown for years, the growth of government has happened and we have to find ways to limit it and to promote the, the benefits of individual individualism and, and freedom in contrast to this sort of collectivism. So I, my personal view on that is that I know the size of this effort is huge, our government and our economy is much larger than it was in 1940. So I don't know what it is in rel relationship to the GDP, but I don't think this is like World War II. I really don't. You know, World War II, that was transformative and, and all-encompassing, and it lasted five years. You know, we lost a lot of Americans, and it was a really, for the world and freedom, it was an existential challenge, uh, um, it seems to me. This is a challenge. This is a crisis. This is a emergency, but it's not World War II. And, and by the way, I would say one of the challenges of AI will be, will really be, and will be needed more than ever, will be to call attention to the aspects of this recovery that, as we come out of it, need to be rolled back and reconsidered because of what it does to you know, the underlying strength of our, our country. We have seen that a little bit too with a lot of laws 
a lot of unnecessary licensing laws have got rolled back. And that's been one example of maybe excessive government that it turns out in a crisis we actually don't need. If, if you're able to work as a doctor in Massachusetts, you probably can be a doctor in Connecticut as well. So some laws have been repealed. Too. Yeah, that's a really good good point. And I noticed that, you know, I did a paper with a prominent scholar two years ago on uh, nurse practitioners and the extent to which they were constrained by licensing rules in scope of practice rules in various states. And I noticed that was one of the very first things that HHS sent out, that those needed to be waived. And states, of course, desperate for healthcare workers have gone forward with those uh, relaxations. So yeah, that's a good point. So that's one positive liberalization of laws, but to perhaps beat a dead horse and return to World War II just one more time, Churchill, <laughs> Churchill won the war and he still got voted out of office afterward because Clement Attlee came in and endorsed the Beveridge Report, building a huge welfare state, a country fit for heroes. Do you think we're young? We don't have as much of a grasp of living history as a lot of our scholars do. But do you think this act of just mailing checks to so many people and pumping so much money into the economy, this might, this at least seems to us, maybe you can correct us if we're wrong, as a pretty revolutionary change in scope of what government can do. And could this lead people to become much more expecting of the federal government to, to come in and maybe not provide a universal basic income, but if they're going to be mailing checks for the next few months. Well, it's a definitely a concern. I think you're right. I think it's a concern. That's, I think I raised that. I think that is a concern and, and, it, and, and it does worry me. But, you know, we have done stimulus checks before. Mm-hmm. President George W. Bush did it. And so it, we've done this sort of very intense fiscal stimulus through direct sending of rebates or, or checks to Americans before. And so I, I don't know. I mean, it's a legitimate question. It's something we got to watch. It could be it could be a fundamental change. But I the problem is I just don't think that it's I think, you know, Nick Everstad would point out to us. It's not like we weren't already whether AI scholars liked it is a different question. We weren't already a country where the growth of the federal government had gotten much bigger and more intrusive into Americans lives than we may have preferred or that we you know, the country, um, most of the country's history was used to. Robert, back to an earlier point you made where you said addressing the public health crisis is essential to actually getting the economy back on track and they shouldn't be seen as two separate projects. What do you say in terms of the timeline debate? And obviously, information becomes clear by the day. We're getting more data, which is helpful. Folks like Scott Gottlieb are doing all the research necessary to understand treatments better, to understand the scope of the problem better, its geographic reach, all these questions. But generally speaking, there is a big question on the timeline of how long we can live like this and how long the economy can go on. Do you have thoughts on, on President Trump's recent announcement about getting the economy rolling again by Easter or just generally on the timeline of how long we can go like this or, you know, how we can ease back into, for lack of a better term, going back to things in their old normal days. As I've observed all of this and watched it very carefully and thought back to my experience in previous crisis situations, I tend to think that it may be sooner than we think. And I'm hopeful that it could be sooner than we think that the, the, the people that say, you know, as they said after 9-11, that we'll be living with terrorist attacks every day or every month for the next 10 years, they were wrong. 
and that we'll never recover from this, they were wrong. I think that the key ingredient and the statistic I follow is the one that Jim Capretta pointed out in his piece that we published today at AEI Today, and that is the extent to which the healthcare system acquires the capacity to deal with the people that are severely affected by this virus. And when that happens, whether it's the healthcare system in New York or the healthcare system in Chicago or the healthcare system in Los Angeles or wherever, when that happens, we're going to feel more comfortable about allowing us to go back to work because that's what we're trying to avoid is an, is an overstretched healthcare system where people who, if they got the care they needed, they would live uh, as opposed to people who can't get the care they need and then they die. So I, one of the things that I may be more comfortable with than you guys, because you know, I'm, I've worked in government, is the fact of the matter is when the federal government decides to do something or a state government with money, it can produce a lot of things rapidly. You know, it may be that these shortages of the things we need in the healthcare system can be addressed more quickly than we realize. And so I think that will be a key factor in helping us go back to work sooner than we expect, than we may expect. Now, we did a conference call this morning with Scott Gottlieb, and he, who knows much more about this than I do, was cautioning that that's not probably going to be before, you know, at least May um, and into May and into May. But that's better than September um, or the middle of summer. And and even then, he said, we're going to have to be careful and we're going to have to watch it carefully. And, you know, the other thing that's going on is people are creating therapeutics that could make it so that, again, you can treat the, this virus uh, more quickly without the need to go to ventilators or an ICU or a hospital. Key thing is hospitalization. So I, you know, I have confidence. I always have confidence. I'm sort of like Warren Buffett. I never bet against the United States. And I have confidence that, that we may actually be able to do the things we need to do to make us comfortable enough to go back to work. Now, the president, I, I think the president, you know, I like the people, I'm not always completely pleased with everything the president does. But I think on this one, he's being sort of hung out to dry on something he was, he was talking about in an aspirational sense. He just said, wouldn't it be nice if, if we could get this, get us back to work, you know, earlier rather than later? And wouldn't it be nice if it could happen in the week after Easter or by Easter? I, I think he was trying to send a more hopeful message. I mean, let's, let's just compare that. You guys like to make historical references, and I, maybe this is a funny one, but President Roosevelt, FDR, said a lot of hopeful things, live hopeful things, about a recovery from the Depression in 1932 and 1933 and 1934 and 1935. And it was very good for the country to hear those hopeful things, but we didn't really come out of the Depression until 1940. So, you know, I, I, I sort of, I'm not one to hold back when I think the president behaves in a bad way or says something that isn't right. But in this case, I, I feel that it was a legitimate thing. And I will say that out in the country, out in America, where Easter means a lot or the Passover, that's a turning point in every pe- everybody's life, everybody's year. That's a, that's a milestone. And it's, we're all looking forward to Easter and a new beginning. So I, you know, I did, it didn't bother me. And if it bothered the Washington press corps, you know, too bad. So, you know, there's all this speculation. A lot of people are talking about the economy, unemployment. These are incredibly important issues. 
Something else, though, that people are speculating a bit now are some of the social ramifications of this. You know, people are saying everything from, you know, higher divorce rates from spouses spending months at home together to, you know. Maybe I thought there's something funny to tell you about that. When I was, um, you know, I was, you know, like everybody following my email and my Twitter and there was a, someone sent me this, this uh, video that's making the rounds of what went, went viral. And it's of this guy looking into a camera and, and the, the voiceover says, you have two choices. You can either A, quarantine with your wife and child or, and then before he can even give option B, the guy says, B, B, B. <laughs> and, you know, all the, all the guys uh, laughed at that. And that went around the male group pretty positively or with some humor. The fact is I'm in. Uh, B. My wife has gone back to uh, New York to be with my children, and it's terrible. I really benefit from and 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 need and enjoy the company of my wife and children. So I'm all alone here in Washington, and it's no fun. You know, on that one, I I think a little bit of um, uh, familiarity and a little bit of time with family is good. There are benefits to it. And, and frankly, you know, if you read Ross Dothut or many others, this is the biggest problem in our country is the extent to which we're not forming families as much as we did in the past. We're not having as many children. And I think it's a problem. I, I really think it's a big problem. And so, sorry, I had to interrupt on that one, but I'm not, I'm on the side of Brad Wilcox and Tim Carney that promote uh, the benefits of um, of the family unit and lots of children and um, and strong marriages. But sorry, what was your question? Well, my question is going to my question is going to be: Is there any uh, you know AEI research coming out um, that talks about that kind of stuff? Because that's I think a really interesting component. But you just mentioned Brad Wilcox. Well, I mean, you know, we have guys that write about those things all the time, and you know, and they will continue to write about them, and they will look at this and what the impact of this is on that. Ross is one of them. Uh, Ryan Streeter is another. Brad Wilcox is a third. Yuval writes about these issues. You know, Angela and uh, Catherine Stevens write about childcare and early learning. So does Aparna Matter. My bet and my belief is that they will they will come back to uh, the sort of typical AI view, which is that family matters a lot, and marriage matters, and children matter. Well. We encourage everyone out there listening right now to go back and listen to our interviews with Yuval Levin and Ross Douthat. They talked a lot about this. Ross has a book out on called The Decadent Society as well. That maybe this yeah, will be the know, thing I, that shocks us out of it. Yeah, you know, he he says I, the way I I read the read it too. I think the way he ends is is, is is you know basically it's a call out for more religious worship and and greater spatial exploration and more children. If you if you sort of say three things. Yep. You know, I'm all for the for the first two, for the for the religious component and for children, the space thing I I don't quite get. I I think he <laughs> never really points out that they got up to the moon and you know there's nothing there. It's just ash. It's just dust. It's not the same as you know the great line at the end of Gatsby uh, where Fitzgerald writes about how man held his breath in the face of the last time they'd seen something that was truly glorious. It's a little exaggeration. But the new world is not the moon. The new world was glorious. The moon in space is, you can't live there. You can't breathe there. And so it's, I just don't, I don't get that obsession with space exploration that these kind of, I view them as part of the kind of, don't take this wrong guys, 
kind of dorky high school students that love Star Trek and Star Wars, but I don't I don't think it's very realistic. Well, Robert, uh, and I think that <laughs> yeah. No, Robert, I was going to say, I think, as you know, we're huge Ross Douthat fans, but I think he spent a little bit too much time watching A New Hope. <laughs> I think, Robert, I think yeah, that right. might be the conversation for a, a, for a second podcast. But yeah. I, 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 I mean, my hero, Charles Crodhammer, was also big into space exploration. So there, there's, a, there's a weird wing of the conservative movement that is really into space for whatever reason. Yeah, I know there is, and I, I, but I don't get it because it's not the same. I don't know what's up. I mean, I thought they went up there and they found there was nothing there and they came back. If there was something there that we could exploit or we could we could take advantage of or we could grow with, you better believe we'd be up there. All right, well, in future podcasts, maybe we'll talk about the merits of uh, space exploration. Okay. Until, until then, Robert, thank you so much for joining us. Thanks for having me, guys, and good luck, and we'll talk later. Thank you all for listening. We hope that you enjoyed. It was nice to be back with you guys here. We know things are kind of crazy right now. Uh, be sure to let us know if you have any feedback, thoughts, suggested guests, whatever. We're trying to continue as normally as possible despite the situation. One thing I would urge you all to do is to go on AEI's website, which is www.aei.org. And on our website, you will find a link to all of our coronavirus research on the homepage. We are doing a lot, as Robert Dorr said. In fact, we're producing more now than we do in ordinary times and we're led by Scott Gottlieb who truly is on the front lines of navigating the United States response to coronavirus and Politico recently labeled him the corona the shadow coronavirus czar did I get that right Matt I believe that's what the article said to and we can always trust Politico but more importantly <laughs> listen to AEI scholars as Robert said this is the moment where we need experts telling us how to navigate this problem and figure out what to do next. And this is not going to be a one, two, or six-week project, but this will be unfolding throughout the next months. And just to echo Tui, I really recommend you check out our website. We have a COVID-19 action tracker here. I'm looking at it now. Interactive map showing you where all the confirmed cases are, how you can help out in each individual state, which states have a state of emergency. Oh, it's actually all of them right now where schools are closed, where travels are restricted, basically any bit of information that you think you could need, we have it all tracked on our map, on our website. So please check it out. In the meantime, we will hopefully be back with you next week. We will probably still be remote. And yeah, remember, you can always email us at banter.ei.org.